are in your lap. If you have your Bibles, go there, Hebrews chapter 13. We have been studying the book of Hebrews. I believe we're into the 40s in number of sermons. Uh, and we have this week and next week, and we will be done with the book of Hebrews, at least in the preaching. We're not done with it ever, amen, because Jesus is greater, and that's really the point of this whole thing that we've been talking about. Um, I really am glad that you know that we're at the passage we're at today because we were at the last passage the last time I preached. And so uh, we're covering every verse and I didn't, I, I have to preach it because it's the next verse, right? And so um, today we're going to talk about godly leadership in the church. And uh, I, I preach this, I'm not making an apology at all at this point, but I'm preaching this as someone who recognizes that God has um, placed me in the position that I'm at here. And at the same time, um, I am not a perfect person. I don't claim to be, but I have an accountability uh, to the Lord and how I lead here. Um, and I also want you to have a high view of, of uh, what pastors do, not just me, but what of, of what uh, people in ministry do, um, that do that as a calling. And then also re recognizing that all of us are called to ministry, that we're all in full-time ministry. And we do that every week as we're not dismissed, but we're sent into Finley, to the neighborhoods and the nations uh, on, a on a mission from God. We're, we are people on a mission to make sure that people know that Jesus saves. And in fact, he's the only one that does save, right? Um, as a young man, a pastor that I worked for really impacted me. He did impacted me directly and in, indirectly. His name was Bill Bales. He's the first pastor I worked for. And he was a funny guy. He was just a really neat guy. I remember telling him, and I actually kind of had a, a moment of fulfillment this week where I, I remember telling uh, Pastor Bales, like, when I have a youth pastor one day, what do I, how do I explain you? You're just a kind of a different person. And then this week I got to try to explain uh, Bill Bales to Miles. And that was kind of like a, I thought about this day a long time ago, but he was a, he was a great man. He, he taught me a lot of things. He taught me that ministry is hard work. Ministry is work. He showed me how to love people. Um, he taught me that I can learn from people that I agree with and from people that I disagree with. You don't, you can learn from everybody. He was a big fan of reading and he taught me that reading wasn't over once I finished seminary. Leaders are readers and readers can be leaders, and that's an important thing. He would often quote a guy named John Maxwell who said two truths about leadership that are both, I think, self-evident and critical. Leadership is influence. Leadership is influence. If you have leadership and you don't have influence, you're not a leader, right? Leadership is influence, and everything rises and falls on leadership. It's critical to have the right people in the right places doing the right things for any organization, business, family, and yes, even church to thrive. And in our study of the book of Hebrews, we've come to Hebrews chapter 13. And this passage, this book has had this theme that Jesus is greater. He is greater. He really is the head of the church. He's the leader of the church. Um, we, we know that Jesus is the leader in our church and we're trying to figure out what he wants us to do. You, you agree with that? We're trying to follow him in that, and the Bible gives us clear direction in that. His word speaks to us. He is God's revelation to us. Chapter 13 
gives us some practical teaching about how to live once we've accepted the theme of the book. Jesus is greater. He's better. Jesus is God and we worship him. Amen. Amen. And so as we get to verse 7, I want to point out a couple of things. I try to make the point of the passage the point of the message. Who thinks that's a good idea? We, we, want, we want to discover what it's saying and then apply it to our lives. If you look at verse 7, I'm going to go from verse 7 down to verse 17. Look at verse 7. It says, we covered this last week, but I'll remember it, we'll, we'll remember it again. It says here, Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Go down to verse 17. This is the end of our text. He says, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You have here at the beginning of our passage and at the end of the passage two references to leadership, and I want to I make the, the case that it's leadership specifically in the church because he says in verse 7, those who have spoken the word, to you the word of God and then in the verse of 17, it talks about those who are going to give an account for how they watch for your souls. Um, who agrees that that's a leadership kind of a thing? Um, in the Bible, the, the um, terms for pastor that are used interchangeably, we use the word pastor in our church. Um, that word pastor has, uh, is the word poemon. It has the idea of a shepherd. Um, and often the church is referred to as a flock and the pastor as a shepherd. Um, and there's not usually, it depends on the size of the church and how the church functions, but there's not only one pastor, there's a plurality of pastors. Um, so you have the pastor, you have, that's one word. Another word is elder um, in the Bible. It's the same office. It's just a different aspect of that office. Elder speaks to, while the pastor term speaks to a shepherding, that is the role and the responsibility. You see that in verse number 17, that one that watches over the soul, the souls. It's kind of the idea of like almost like a shepherd giving watch. You guys are, you know, know that's what shepherds do, right? They, they watch for the flock. They care for the flock. So you have this pastor role. Then you have an elder role, which speaks to a spiritual maturity. Um, it speaks to um, their discernment. It speaks to their walk with the Lord, that they're not a novice, as the Bible talks about as a qualification for an elder, that they're not brand new in the faith. And then you have the idea of a bishop. It's the same word. It's, um, it, it's a word that literally, it's episkopos is the actual Greek word, and it means to take the oversight. So it's talking about the administrative or the leading role that a pastor has. All three terms are used interchangeably in a couple different passages in the same passage talking to the same group of people, which lends us to understand that this is one office, not many offices, not three separate offices. Do you understand? Does that make sense? And if you want to argue with me, let, at least buy me coffee and we'll talk about it. Okay. That'll be good. And so uh, that's something we can do. So here, I believe talking about shepherding the flock, talking about taking the oversight as one who watches for your souls. I believe, at least at the beginning and the end, he is referring to the leaders that are here present in a local body, in a local church, but he's also referring to Christ, who's the, he's the head of the church, right? Um, if, if people were the head of the church, um, it, there would be a problem when there's a funeral, right? 
And we've seen churches where when the pastor goes, then the people go. And that's not a good thing because the church is way bigger and way more important than any one person. You agree with that, right? Right? The church is not its pastor. It's bigger than that. The mission is bigger than that. We can't limit our mission to just one or two or three people who agree with me. That's an important thing. What does the pastor do? He equips the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what he does. And so you see in this chapter, in verse 7, this reference to those who rule over you. In verse 17, those who have rule over you, it's the same people. And then in verse 8, it speaks of Jesus Christ. I love this. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. Mimic me. Imitate me. That's what Jesus said. And if we followed him and we... Who agrees that's, that's a tough task to follow, to imitate and be exactly like Jesus. Uh, human leaders in the, in, the, in the church, human leaders in that early church said things like this, follow me as I follow Christ, right? So he, it's saying imitate your leader, but <laughs> imitate them as they are doing a good job of imitating Christ. There's some things you ought not imitate about them, Right? Because they're sinful. I'm a sinner. I think I've sinned today, probably. Megan, have I sinned today? That was a very quick yes. I'm a little bit... I know Miles sinned today. Amen. Where's he at? But you know who never changes? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is no longer on this earth, but his ministry when he was on this earth was to pour his life, his word, his influence, and men who, sent, who were sent to win people to Christ, to disciple them, and then to send them out to do ministry. Ephesians 4 tells us that he gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting or the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Jesus truly is greater. And for us to be like him, do you want to be like him? Amen. I hope you do. I hope that's your heart. Today I want you to have that heart that I want to be like Jesus, um, that I want to allow God I want to abide in Christ so that he can mold me and shape me and produce fruit in my life. I hope that's your heart. He, he, for us to be like him and to be on his mission, he's given godly leadership in the church or leadership that ought to be godly to help the church to grow. It's my desire today to point us towards Jesus, towards being like Jesus and to do that through helping all of us to see the qualities of godly leaders in the church and how we should respond to them. It should be that in a good, healthy church, there is godly leadership who are aiming not just at the church growing numerically. And I don't make any uh, uh, apologies for wanting our church to grow numerically because I want us to see um, people get saved and people grow. And, and so that's not a good thing, but I want the numerical growth. If there is, if God seeks to do that in our midst, I want it to be, to happen at, as a result of actual spiritual growth, people becoming like Jesus, people growing deep in Christ and then Christ growing 
the body in breadth, deep and wide. And so it's my desire to point us to Jesus, to being like Jesus, and to do that through helping us all see the qualities of godly leaders in the church and how we should respond to those leaders. So here's the sermon in a sentence. God has given us, well, two sentences. Not perfect. (laughs) God has given us godly leaders who know that Jesus is greater and are trying to exemplify him. Here are five qualities of godly leaders and how we should respond to them. Here's the first quality. We're going to give you qualities of a godly leader and then how we respond to them. Number one, quality number one, godly leaders exemplify biblical faith. They exemplify biblical faith. Back to what we've already read, but let's read it again. Verse seven, remember them which have the rule over you. What does remember mean? Pay attention, bring them to memory. Consider them in how you live, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Can I tell you that I could not do my job that I do if it wasn't for this book right here? And we, you couldn't do ministry if it wasn't for this book. And by the way, there are people in this town that are attempting to do things from Jesus in the name of Jesus, and they haven't read the book. Not everything that calls itself a church is a church, okay? And there are people that are trying to do ministry based on tradition, based on what they've been taught, that's extra biblical or even anti-biblical. And a shepherd takes care of the sheep, but points out and even shoots at the wolves. Are you with me? Here he says, remember those who have rule over you, not because they have any of their own authority, but because their authority comes from the word of God. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Um, I had a a meeting yesterday, did some training with some teachers in our church, trying to help them to grow in their ability to teach, to get better at it, and I'm, I'm trying to grow in that. And, and, and we, we said together, and this is something we all affirm, that the point of Bible teaching, the point of what we're trying to accomplish today is life change. We want people to actually become obedient to the word of God. And if I want life change to happen in your life, and I believe that the Bible can change your life, then As a leader, I have to realize and I have to submit to the idea that the first person that needs to be changed by my preaching ministry, by my teaching ministry, by my ministry in the word of God is me. I got to be different. The person who grows the most in any particular Sunday school class, I'm telling you, is the teacher. And it's because of how they take the word of God in. That doesn't make them the best. It just, it's, it's our responsibility. And what I, my heart's desire for our church and for you is that your growth isn't limited to what happens from the word of God on Sunday morning. That you grow in the word of God every single day. We have such a privilege to be able to have, how many of you guys have a copy of God's word? How many of you guys have more than one? Right? If you don't have one, open your phone and go to the app store and type in, Bible, and you can get one. I mean, like right now, you can get one. I won't tell you our Wi-Fi password, but you can get one, right? And, and so what an important thing. So 
it's not enough for someone to say, hey, he tells you what the Bible says. He goes on and says in verse seven, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. The word conversation here in the Old English is not talking about the words they use. It's talking about their lifestyle. Essentially, he's saying, as you watch these godly leaders, consider how they live. If they say the word of God and then they live the word of God, man, it's such a good combination. They're doing what they, they're saying what needs to be said. And they're also doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so, and so, and then he says, I think there's no accident that verse eight comes after verse seven, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even when that human leader exemplifies and does a good job, there's gonna be times where he doesn't do a good job and we don't ultimately only follow a leader, we follow Jesus. We follow that leader as they follow Christ. And so we ought to be an example and godly leaders. And it's not limited. This principle is not limited to pastors. By the way, leadership is influence. And if you call yourself a Christian beyond this place, you have influence in your neighborhood, at your work, at your school, and people are watching you. You. They look at what you post. They look at what you say. You're posting about Jesus on Monday and then living like the devil on Thursday. They know. So pay attention to your example too. So godly leaders exemplify biblical faith and that faith impacts the way that they live. So what should our response to them be? Godly leaders exemplify biblical faith. The next slide says this. Imitate them. Godly leaders exercise or exemplify biblical faith. And I would say as they follow Christ, imitate them. Here's quality number two. Are you ready for number two? Quality number two. Godly leaders teach biblical doctrine. Teach biblical doctrine. Now look at what it says in verse nine. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Here is yet another command in this text. The first command was to remember them which have rule over you. The second command is don't be carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. This would include anything that was contrary to Scripture. It also would include anything taught as God's will that wasn't mentioned in Scripture. Rules and edicts of man that are not found in the Word of God. He tells them not to be ruled by those kinds of teaching. Remember, what's the name of the book we're studying? Hebrews. Were Hebrews, were the Jews, are the Jews even today concerned with diet? Yeah? They still are, aren't they? Anybody have a kosher pickle? Right? And uh, that was a dumb statement. Um, Of course they are concerned with that. And there were here rules that were being said that, you know, you can get to God by Jesus, but you also have to continue these dietary laws. That's taught by some churches in Finley today, that that there are still some things from the law in terms of diet and all that that you, have to, that you still have to, to follow. 
The kind of rules that showed up to the Hebrews in, that, in, the, in the days of this writing were around dietary laws. He contrasts this verse being established by grace rather than by meats. He's saying we're made in Christ not by what we eat, but by Jesus himself. The idea is that the altar at which Christ was sacrificed and the grace he has provided is far superior to the altar and the sacrifices of bulls and goats could, that bulls and goats could ever provide. Our relationship with God is established on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ and through faith in him we have access to this grace that is provided by God. The, this establishes our hearts in a way that legalism, rule-keeping, Never can. This happens in churches today. Churches have like what the Bible says and then they have a list of all these other things that you're supposed to do. And, and by the way, um, God still has a law. There's still some things God desires and God has a will, but we gotta be careful when we speak on God's behalf. That's called taking God's name in vain that we're leveraging God to get people to live the way we want them to live that may not be necessarily the way that God wants them to live. And so we ought to be careful about what leaders we listen to. We ought to be careful as leaders to say what God says. And really, when we say something more than what God says, when we give our opinion, we ought to say, hey, this is our opinion. There's a time when I say, thus saith the Lord, and then there's a time that I say, now this is what I think about this. Does that make sense? Let me just say this. This gives me an occasion to say this. Be careful of false teaching and of false teachers. One of the most dangerous places to go, for a new believer especially, is the Christian bookstore. One of the most dangerous places to go and to listen to is Christian television. I'm not saying everything on Christian television is wrong. I'm saying there's a lot on Christian television that's wrong. There are people marketing Jesus at your expense. And so you need to have a trust that comes from this right? Um, not everybody on YouTube is right. Not everybody on YouTube is wrong. There's some good stuff on there. Be careful. Be careful. You have to know the Bible yourself so that you can identify what's wrong. Be careful that when you speak on God's behalf, you say no more than what he has said. And specifically from these verses, be, be grateful to God for his sacrifice and serve him obediently because you've been saved. Because you've been saved. Obey God because you've been saved, not in order to be saved. Also be careful not to use grace as an opportunity for sin. God paid a high price for my redemption. And so, godly leaders say from his word, thus says the Lord. This is what the passage says. Let's rightly divide it and let's, here it is, believe it. Believe the truth. Reject the lies. Reject what's false and believe the truth. Quality, 
Quality number one, godly leaders exemplify biblical faith. Quality number two, godly leaders teach biblical doctrine. Let's believe the truth. Here's quality number three. What are we talking about? How we, what a godly leader, what a godly pastor, what a godly Sunday school teacher, what that looks like, and then, and then how we respond to them. Here's the third quality. Godly leaders identify with Christ. Look at verse 11. This is a continuing we have an altar in verse 10, whereby they have no right to eat, which serve at the tabernacle for the body of those beasts whose blood is brought unto the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. This is, um, as of the writing of Hebrews, this is a confirmation of an early dating for Hebrews because by AD 70, the temple was destroyed and the sacrificial system was done. As this guy writes, he's saying, this is happening right now. Are you with me? So the book of Hebrews is trying to get Hebrews, try to tell them you can be Hebrews, but you don't have to live like Hebrews because Jesus is greater. He's a greater sacrifice. He's a greater priesthood. He's greater in all these other ways. He's saying about those ones that serve at the altar, those priests that serve at the altar, they don't have a right by doing that. They don't have any more right than we have, right? Verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which served at the tabernacle. Remember we talked about earlier that there's the earthly temple, but then there's a heavenly temple, right? And, and he's saying it's a totally different thing. Verse 11, the body of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, for wherefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach, for, we, for here have we no continuing city but we seek one to come. Man, this is beautiful. I, I can't wait to explain it to you. Are you ready? Exodus 29, 14 describes the command of what's called the sin offering. It says in that verse, Exodus 29, 14, I think it's on the screen. Yes, okay. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. Now, when it says without, Usually when we think of the word without, we think that we had it, now we're without it. This without means outside. Okay, so when you see that old English and he says without, you're saying without the camp. It's not saying, oh, the, where did the camp go? No, it's talking about outside of the camp. So what he's saying is there's this thing called the sin offering. And when they did the sin offering, what they would do is they would take the bull and everything about the bull down to his, even his dung. And they would take it outside the camp and they would burn it as a sin offering unto the Lord. Verse five, Leviticus chapter four, verse five and seven says more about it. It says this, and the priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and the sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of a sweet incense before the Lord, which is the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour the, all the blood of the bullock all, all the, at the bottom of the altar to the burnt offering, which is the door of the tabernacle of congregation. What's being alluded to here is the fact that the bodies of the animals offered on the day of atonement, they were not eaten. They were burned outside of the camp. Hebrews 13 becomes more understandable, like I said, when you understand that without means outside of. The preacher is pointing to the sacrifice outside of the camp or outside of the city 
The camp was when it was in the tabernacle, when the, the tabernacle was made of tents where they camped in the Exodus. Later on, the tabernacle was now the temple. And he's saying when Jesus was, when Jesus was sacrificed, he was sacrificed outside of the temple, outside of the city. That's where it happened. Who, who's with me? Calvary, Golgotha, that's not in Jerusalem. It's outside of it. So he's making an analogy. He's saying when they would make an offering for sin with those bulls, they would go outside the camp. Jesus was made an offering for sin outside of the city. Do you get it? So, man, it sounds like you, you got it and you like it. Okay, good. Jesus Christ is the supreme sacrifice for sin. That was crucified outside the gates of the Jerusalem. And the preacher is saying to the Hebrew believer, let's go outside of the camp and bear his reproach. We're not in the temple anymore trying to do things that way. That's the old system. Let's go into the new thing because Jesus is greater and there's a better sacrifice. But when Jesus was outside the gate, when he was crucified on that cross, there was a whole lot of shame. There's a whole lot of reproach. Jesus Christ was hung on a tree. He was there naked, beaten and bruised, and the wrath of God was poured out onto him. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Are you guys ex excited about that this morning? Not that you're thrilled that Jesus died, but that he bore that reproach in our shame for us outside of the city. His blood has been offered so that no more blood need to be shed for our sin to be atoned. It is enough. He shed his blood outside the established temple sacrificial system and has replaced that system by fulfilling it. So Jesus Christ himself sanctifies us. Not any strange doctrine tied to dietary laws. We're not sacrificed. We're not sanctified by that. We're not saved by that. We're saved by Jesus and his blood. Jesus Christ himself atones us, not the blood of bulls and goats. We don't have to go to an earthly tabernacle or to an earthly priest to mediate for us because Jesus Christ is sitting on the right hand of God in a heavenly tabernacle and ever lives to make intercession for us. Our allegiance now is to Jesus Christ and to himself and not to some religious system. And so it says here in verse 14, for we have no continuing city. For here, we have no continuing city. What is he saying? Now, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we don't need Jerusalem in the sense that we need a temple and a place to come and a sacrificial system and priests. We don't need that. Our city is no longer here. Point to where our city is. It's coming. It's coming. The city that is coming is an eternal, enduring city. It's being made by God. Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Abraham anticipated this place. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. So do we who believe in Jesus Christ. This was referenced back in Hebrews 12, 22. But you are come unto Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, 
which are written in heaven, and God to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling. It's almost like he wrote the whole book, right? That speak the better thing than that of Abel. John the Revelator prophesied about this city when he said, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Who, who votes for this verse, ready? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. Man, I can't wait for that. Jesus in his ministry was a man without a home. We go with him outside of the gate and he says, bearing his reproach. You know what he's saying to Hebrews? I know that if you stop doing all the system and all the tradition you did before because you believe that Jesus is greater, you're gonna bear reproach for that. People are gonna look at you and say, that's weird. What cult have you joined? You know, are you with me? Can you imagine Jews who have lived as Jews all of a sudden believing Jesus has come and a bunch of other Jews not believing it and now they're going, okay, I don't need to go to the temple. I don't need to, I don't need to do all that. How did they think some of those Jews would have treated them? With reproach. And what the writer's saying here is, you know what? If you have to, for Jesus' name, because he's greater, because he's done all this for you, also bear that kind of reproach by leaving the system and going out to Jesus outside of that system, outside the gate. Don't worry about it. You got a city coming. You're not homeless. You're not without family. What did Jesus say? I, I came to set mom against dad, brother against sister, mother-in-law against Daughter-in-law? Son-in-law? Sometimes it feels like son-in-law. It's a joke. You get my point. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Some of you are going to follow me, and it's going to be at the expense of human relationships. But it's okay. There's a new family. There's a new city. We look forward to a time when all of the effects are simply former Things. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And so what a godly leader says is, hey, this assembly, thing we call church, ought to be a family. And there are times when, when people believe and they accept Christ, they're ostracized from their own family. They're outside of that system. They're outside of what that is. So, hey, let's become a family. And if it means that when we stand up for Jesus, we have to bear reproach, hey, what did Jesus say? Blessed are you when you suffer persecution. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and say all manner of evil things against you. For my name's sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven in that new city. What an amazing thing. Just a couple points of application. We ought to be willing to suffer on Christ's behalf because he was willing to suffer for our atonement. We can get, here's another point, we can get too at home in this world. This place is temporary. 
the world system is against everything for which God desires. Our values come from another city. Our citizenship is first and foremost there, not here. And so, so when, when the world is fundamentally against us, we, we, not, we ought not hate our mission field, but we cannot be surprised when they're upset with our vision and values. We ought to try to reach everyone we can. We ought to speak truth to them with a heart of love like Jesus did. And there are times, though, like Jesus, where we, are call, where we should call out evil, knowing that we will not be liked for doing so. It's in those moments, like these godly leaders, it's in, it's in moments like these that godly leaders call us to identify with Christ even when it is difficult. Godly leaders say, let's go outside the city to the place where Jesus was rejected and let's bear his reproach. So godly leaders identify with Jesus. How do we respond? We bear Christ's reproach. Two more, you ready? Quality number four. Godly leaders worship God sacrificially. Here's what it says. By him, who's him? Jesus, who was made a reproach for us. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifices of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. If Jesus died on the cross, If Jesus bore the sin of the world for us, we have a responsibility to believe, right? What has God done for us? Have you seen this? He revealed himself. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Look at all that God did to say that he loves us and wants to redeem us. Who agrees? It's a big deal. Even if it costs us, the least we can do is say, thank you. Isn't that what it says? By him, therefore, because of this, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Praise and worship is not a style of music. It is the lifestyle of a redeemed people. Praise and worship doesn't just happen when we get to church. Although, man, I'm grateful for corporate worship. I'm grateful for gentry and all these that labor for us to get together and to sing songs that are old and songs that are new. Both. So that we can honor and worship our God and give thanks to him. Why? Because of what he's done for us. I'm thankful for that. We ought to do that. But if the only time you thank Jesus is in this building... You need to consider what Jesus has done for you and how that impacts the rest of your week. So godly leaders worship and they call others to worship God, the fruit of our lips, but not just our lips. Look at what it says in verse 16, but to do good and to communicate. Forget not, the word communicate there is talking about a giving, sharing what you have. And he's saying, don't just, don't just live a worship life with your lips. Live a life of worship with your hands. Live a life of worship with your bank account. Live a life of worship with your calendar. Not because God needs your time or your money, but because you can worship God by serving others with your time and your money and your energy and your hand. Are you with me? To do good and communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, what does he call them? Sacrifices. You know what that means? 
Your worship ought to cost you something. Your worship ought to cost you something. David said, when somebody gave him something because he needed it, he said he was going to give God a piece of land. Then someone gave him the land and he goes, no, I'm going to pay for the land because I'm not going to offer God something that doesn't cost me something. I want my worship to God to cost something. We can offer him sacrifice that are sacrificial because of him. So, Praise and worship ought not to be the fruit of the life and lips, ought to be the fruit of the life and the lips of the believer. We ought to sing and to praise, and when it's time to do that corporately, we should do that enthusiastically as unto the Lord. Our, can I just say this? The worship time and the music time, there's a sense in which it's manward. Uh, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Ephesians chapter 5 says, don't be, filled with, uh, with, don't be, drunk, with, um, don't be drunk with wine where it's in excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. When he says speaking to yourselves, it's saying that I'm encouraged by you in your worship to God and you're encouraged by me. Who agrees? That happens. And there's a reason why we're not doing polka music. We ain't in Germany a hundred years ago. We're in America today, right? So we're Americans. Are you with me? So we can actually enjoy the music, right? You can enjoy it, right? And you can have, a, you can have an opinion about what it ought to be. You can have a preference, but don't, Mistake the idea that you think the music is for you. What? It's a worship service. It isn't for me. If it was for me, it would sound different. If it was about me, I have, I have some preferences. But it ain't about me. Who's it for? It's for him. The fruit of our lips, it, what is it? It's a vehicle for us to say, thank you for what you've done for me. Now we have to pick music. We have to pick instruments, so it's still manward. But when you come and you worship, you should be, hey, do I like this song or not? No, wait, is my heart right with God so that I can offer him a good worship here? This is about him. It is not American Idol He was flat. Who cares if he was flat? We're going to try not to be flat. Who thinks that's a good idea? Let's try not to be flat. But at the end of the day, it ain't for you. Get that off my chest. <laughs> the fruit of our lips, not just in music, but in our daily lives, giving thanks to his name and doing good with what we say and what we do. So, godly leaders, call us to worship and they do worship God sacrificially. We praise with our lips and we work with our hands. Are you with me? That's what we do. That's what godly leaders call us to do. That's what God calls us to do. Here's the fifth quality. Finally, it's over. Okay, here we go. Quality number five. Godly leaders lead under accountability. 
Godly leaders lead under accountability. This is a scary verse for me. But we've arrived at it, so I have to preach it. Verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable. For who? For you. In verse 7, there's a reference to those who have rule over you. This, the first time was in, in this chapter that talked about considering their example. They are referred to as those who have spoken to you the word of God and, to, and people who have faith worthy of following in a, in a lifestyle worth imitating. This informs the way the Holy Spirit moved the author, the preacher here, and who he was thinking of. There seems to be, this seems, these seem to be, and I believe are talking about leaders in the church, especially pastors and teachers, who are trying to help everyone know and obey God's word and to lead the whole assembly the ecclesia, to do what the scripture says. The authority of these leaders is qualified in the verse in two ways, two ways that the job is described. Do you see it? It says first here that they have a serious task. It says, obey them that have rule over you, that have oversight, episkopos, those who take the oversight, and submit yourselves, meaning follow their leadership. Why? Here's the serious task. For they watch for your souls. As they that must give an account. We already know that they have a stewardship of God's word. As we've read in verse 7. They're providing an example of a living, of living for the whole congregation. In verse 7 it is told that they watch for your souls. The idea of watching is standing guard or paying attention or intervening through prayer and teaching and influence and help. And they said that they have to do that. This is the second part that makes this so serious. Is this a serious, not only a serious task, but a serious accountability. To steward the word of God in the souls of men is to steward the two things that are eternal in this world and the two things most precious to God. This verse reminds the reader and the leader that they will give an account for how they handle that stewardship. So because of the seriousness of this task and the importance of following the Lord and his word, there's a command given in seven, verse 17, and the response is given in this command. What does it say? So obey them and submit to them. Now that doesn't mean that I have a right to tell you what to do in every area of your life. He's kind of already covered that, Right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when the, the pastor, the teacher, the leader says, hey, this is what the Bible says. Let's do that. Or when the Bible calls somebody, when the pastor, and this is true of anybody, calls somebody, goes and deals with you personally and says, hey, this is what the Bible says. He's saying, don't make it hard for them. It's a serious task. Submit to them. Now, this is probably not a popular idea in today's culture, but there is a submission that people should have to godly leadership. This pastoral authority has been abused in the past by some. The pastor has no right to command what ought to happen because of his own personal authority informed by merely personal preference. 
to try to exert control over things that are not spelled out in Scripture is to go too far. Yet to try to hold us accountable to what the Bible says is the task of the leader. And so the attitude of servant leadership by the pastors and obedience and submission to the specific application of the word in the context of a local body of believers by those believers is the point here. The role of the under-shepherd is to lead the sheep and to watch out for wolves. Don't make it unnecessarily difficult for those who are in authority and will give an account to shepherd the flock. Why? Why? For they watch for your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Can I tell you, I am thankful for the leaders in our church. I'm thankful for Pastor Corey. I'm thankful for uh, Pastor Miles. I'm thankful for our deacons and our trustees. I'm thankful for our staff. I'm thankful for our Sunday school teachers. I don't know of anybody that has the positions that steward people and the Bible at our church that aren't taking that role very seriously. And so I think we ought to, there ought to be a unity in this, right? There ought to be a unity in, well, if God's word says it and that's the direction God's leading us, let's do it. Who agrees? That's a good idea. I think it's an awesome thing. Now, if I say something that isn't backed up by this, Come talk to me. Let's talk about it. I am not perfect. I mess up. But do it nicely. (laughs) Be kind. Not everybody's kind. And now everybody has a platform. It's like, why are you telling the whole world on social media and not coming and talking to me. Doesn't happen that often. I'm just giving you an example. Now, can I tell you, church, I love you. I'm so grateful for you. I am. And you allow me to do what I do with joy. And I'm not the only one doing ministry around here. We're doing it together. We reach people, we teach people, and we minister to people And that's bigger than any one of us. Amen? Amen. Leadership is influence. God has given leaders to the church to equip the saints for works of ministry. Today we have seen five qualities of godly leaders and how we ought to respond to them. Godly leaders exemplify biblical faith. Where we can and where we should, we imitate them. Godly leaders teach biblical doctrine. We ought to to know the word of God and, and believe it. Godly leaders identify with Christ even in his suffering. And that's what he calls his followers to do too. We bear Christ's reproach. Godly leaders worship God sacrificially. Sacrificially. We praise with our lips and we serve with our hands even when we bear reproach. And then number five, godly leaders lead under accountability. So when it's right to do, we ought to submit to their leadership. And when a church does that, man, and when a leader is godly, and when a church is in unity under the headship of Jesus Christ, the Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the assembly. Would you bow your heads and close?